This is Tax Update Podcast number 15 for Saturday, September 17, 2005. The Tax Update Podcast, as you're probably aware by now, is intended for tax professionals who are able to do their own tax research and is not designed for those who cannot independently confirm the items discussed in this podcast. If you have an issue involving these areas, please be sure to do independent research before moving forward with the items discussed today. Today we are going to discuss the second chance regulations, second chances to make elections, under Regulation 301.9100-1, 2, and 3. Today's podcast is being recorded here in Tucson at the University Marriott, where I'm staying this Saturday for my wife is down here for a conference on medical coding at the Tucson Convention Center, and I'm here using up a free night of Marriott stays that I had from previous travels. So we came down here and spent the evening in Tucson and are going to go back tonight. Uh, Basically, I'm sitting here overlooking the University of Arizona campus, not terribly far from the Tucson Community Center, and we'll be leaving here in a few hours, checking out of the hotel, but prior to that, I'm going to go ahead and record the following week's podcast, so I have that ready to go. This week's podcast deals with the regulations noted that deal with the fact of life and tax practice. All of us have to deal with the fact that due dates are a matter of norm in tax practice. And in fact, we have deadlines beyond the simple tax return deadlines most of our clients are aware of. A number of elections must be made by specified dates, and if those dates are missed, the right to take the election is lost forever. In some cases, these are elections that affect the entire life of a business or an organization. So once you fail to make this election, you may be in trouble from here forward. As well, the elections are ones that can have significant consequences. Now, basically, these elections tend to be required to be met by a due date because they're elections of a type where Congress indicated they didn't want taxpayers to be able to go back and forth and game the system. For instance, the election to carry forward a net operating loss must be made on the original return. Taxpayers did, the Congress did not want taxpayers to be able to first carry back the loss, and then after they got to look forward, remember this thing runs for many years in the future, decide, you know, I would have gotten more money back had I waited. So what I want to do now is undo my carry back and now elect to carry forward and get my tax in the later year but have already had the money from the carry back, so I'm just going to pay the interest differential. I'm going to get so much more back, I'm better off. Congress didn't want that type of calculus being run on these elections, so what the Congress decided was that you had to make your choice when the return was filed. The IRS, recognizing that some some of these options are rather arbitrary, said, well, we're going to give you an out of sorts under these rules that we're going to discuss today. But we're going to limit this out. So while there is a date set in the law or in the regulations, what the IRS is offering you is an extended date that adds some time to that in some cases, if you meet these requirements. Now, 
The IRS authority for extending an election is under Section 301.9100-1, provides a general standard for an extension of time to make an election. Now that tells us an election is defined as an application for relief in respect of tax, a request to adopt, change, or retain an accounting method or accounting period. However, the IRS goes on to note that a request for extension of time to file a tax return pursuant to Section 6081 is not an election. That is, it cannot be, you cannot use these procedures to go, oops, you know, April 15th went by and I forgot to file the return or extend it. Uh, I, I want now relief from that uh, failure. I want to treat that as an election to extend. The IRS said, no, we're not going to allow you to argue that was an election. For the purpose of these rules, that is not an election, and you can't use these automatic rules to get an extension under these rules. There are two types of, elect of elections defined. A regulatory election means an election whose due date is prescribed by a regulation published in the Federal Register, Revenue Ruling, Revenue Procedure Notice or Announcement Published Internal Revenue Bulletin. The other type of election is a statutory election, which means the date is prescribed by statute. The general standard for relief is found in Regulation 301.9100-1C. And what we find there is the rules tells us that the commissioner and exercise of commissioner's discretion may grant a reasonable extension of time under the rules set forth in sections 301.9100-2 and 301.9100-3 to make a regulatory election or statutory election, but no more than six months in the case of a taxpayer who is, in, who is abroad, under all subtitles of the Internal Revenue Code except subtitles E, F, G, H, and I. Now note, the statutory election is limited to six months, is the option the IRS grants there under these rules, while a regulatory election does not have that constraint. So this is the important distinction over whether you have a statutory or regulatory election and you're trying to come under these provisions under either two, the automatic provisions, or three, the uh, non-automatic provisions. Now, the excluded subtitles are not going to be a concern to most taxpayers and advisors because you look at what's been included. Included is subtitle A on income taxes, B on estate and gift, C on employment and withholding taxes, D on the excise taxes, the F procedure administration rules, and K the group's health plan requirements are covered. And most of our problems in our elections are going to fall in there. However, this kind of brings up a good overview point that we need to worry about. When you're dealing with all of these rules and these elections, you need to do kind of a walking point of going through. We have a missed election. What do we do now? Well, what you're going to have to do is get these regulations out along with the primary source documents and start walking through where we go because you're going to discover in these rules we do have to back check and discover what exactly had gone on. We have to check and see what's happening. We have to check and see how this works with this regulation. Uh, every time you do one of these, there's going to be a slightly different procedure potentially that applies because there are a number of ways the IRS can grant relief. 
And even under these, even if you get down to the fact that only the rules here apply, you still have different sections here. We have at least three different ways we can fall under the get relief under these provisions, and we have to find out which one of the three we need to use or if we can use any of them. Now, here comes the first qualification. Regardless of the rest of what you find under these provisions, there are elections that are excluded from relief under the general standards. Now, this is found in Regulation 301.9100-1D, which provides, it claims provide two sets that are not included. But the first one it provides is the election under 4980A, F5. Now, those of us who've been around a while, and those of us who've been around a while and spent way too much time thinking and memorizing code sections, may get triggered the fact that that was the old grandfather election for the excise tax on excess distributions from qualified plans. Now, some of you who haven't been around very long may go, first, what's a grandfather election, and B, what's the excise tax on excess distributions on qualified plans? Well, the good news was, if you want the history of this back in 1986, as I recall our dates, we were imposed an excise tax on excess distributions, or somewhere in that range, what was called excess distributions from qualified plans. They were going to penalize you if you got too much out of your plan. What happened after that was, and at that date, because previously there had been no such tax, there was an election you could make under various complicated rules to grandfather the previous amount in, which may or may not have been to your benefit. The And that was an incredibly messy set of calculations, and a whole set of analysis went into all that, and it was a pain. In 1997, Congress repealed the excess distributions tax, so we're back to where we were before 86, so kind of forget all of that. So the upshot of all this is your first exception is irrelevant. The second exception is more important, and that is you ignore these general rules for elections that are expressly accepted from relief. So if the reg or if the statute says there is no relief, there is no option here, you're out of luck, you cannot use this relief, or where alternative relief is provided by a statute, a regulation, a revenue ruling, revenue procedure, notice, or announcement published in the IRB. So what that tells us is the IRS can grant alternative relief. They can make separate procedures for any particular election. They can provide you don't use these procedures to get an extended relief, you have to go use this other procedure, and that other procedure can be in something like a notice or an announcement from the IRS that's in the IRB. So again, for any particular election, you're going to have to first determine is there alternative guidance. If there has been alternative guidance to fix your late election problem, then you go and make reference to that alternative guidance. Well, let us presume that we don't have that. Let's presume that we're now with an election that was supposed to have been made. The election was not made. And we're past the date when it should have been made. 
and now we're looking to fix the problem because we have decided that election is one that would have benefited the taxpayer. The taxpayer wants to make it. Well, the easiest approach, if we can qualify, is the automatic relief provisions under Regulation 301.9100-2. Remember, in general, when we request something from the IRS that they have discretion, in most cases, in order to get that, we must ask the IRS for a private letter ruling, which involves user fees, which involves normally a lot of professional time, which involves a walkthrough, which can get very expensive and very time-consuming and take a long time before we know the answer to whether we got it. So we would much prefer to have automatic relief if it's at all possible. Well, Regulation 301.9100-2 provides the automatic relief provisions. And if we are eligible for those, we make use of those. There are two classes of automatics, and they're judged and they're classified based upon the length of time. Under Regulation 301.9100-2B, there is basically the automatic, or I should say under .2A, there is a 12-month relief provided for certain elections. Now, these are specified elections. A broader class is eligible for the automatic six-month extension under 301.9100-2B. So we have 12-month and six-month automatic extensions. If we don't fall under those, then our, we have to drop into the next provision, which is the discretionary uh, grant of relief under 301.9100-3, and that will require a private letter ruling. In both automatic cases, the taxpayer must take the corrective action described at 301.9100-2C and must follow the procedural guidance found at 301.9100-2D. What is the corrective action? Well, the corrective action is the same for both the 12- and 6-month extensions. And basically, for purposes of this regulation, the regulation provides corrective action means taking the steps required to file the election in accordance with the statute or regulation published in the Federal Register or Revenue Ruling, etc., where you're told how to do the, the election. So you have to follow all the procedures as if you had made the election correctly. And for those elections required to be filed with a return, the corrective action includes filing an original or amended return for the year of regulatory or statutory election should have been made and attaching the appropriate form or statement making the election to that return. So we have to, if it's required to go with a return, we've got to file the return or file an amendment to the return and attach the election. Taxpayers who make an election or automatic extension must file the return in a manner that's consistent with the election. That makes sense. If we make the election, the election changes how we should have reported things on the tax return, we need to file a return in that fashion and must comply with all other requirements for making the election for the, for the year in question uh, and for all affected years. Otherwise, the IRS may invalidate the election. 
So basically, you make the election, you do have to go back and fix it. You can't argue that, well, it's not really a significant change this year, so I don't want to amend and change the return. Sorry, if you need the election to be valid, you must go back and make the changes. If you don't, you don't get the automatic correction. Therefore, without the automatic correction, you don't have an election, and you may have potentially invalid election. That could be a problem going forward. If the taxpayer qualifies for the automatic relief, you do have to follow the procedural requirements, which requires a notation at the top of the documents being filed. And basically what you say is you say filed pursuant to regulation 301.9100-2. Uh, you send your automatic extension to the same address that the filing to make the election would have been sent had it been timely filed. You do not request a letter ruling. You do not pay a user fee. So that's the good news is found in the procedural requirements. You merely make the notation filed pursuant to this regulation on top of the document. Be sure that's there. File it where it would normally have been filed, and you're done if you're in under these regulations. The granting of the extension is automatic, so your, your, your election is now valid, and you have the election in place. 12-month extensions. The 12-month extension rule applies to a specified subset of elections. The IRS lists them in the regulation. Uh, this is the most liberal option, the longest time period available. So if you qualify for the 12-month, you generally want to use the 12-month. So suggestion is you take the list that is provided in the materials and use that as a checklist when you discover an election has been missed. If an election's been missed, you drop straight to here and see if we're within 12 months of when we should have made the election. You drop straight into this list and see if it's listed here. If it is, you breathe the sigh of relief and start the action in time before the 12 months run. Now, basically, it provides in generally on my extension of 12 months for making a regulatory election. Now, note, again, these are only regulatory elections are in this list. If it's a statutory election, it won't be here because, remember, the statutory elections are limited to a six-month extension. They couldn't be 12-month extensions. For purposes of this paragraph, the due date for making a regulatory extension is the extended due date of the return. It's a due date of the election is the due date of the return or the due date of the return including extension and the taxpayers obtained an extension to file the return. Okay, so if it's that that tells you the definition of what your due date what your date was if you have a 12 month and this extension is re, is available regardless of whether the taxpayer timely filed his return for the year the election should have been made. That's very useful even if the return was not filed and the election should have been made with by the due date of the return, you still have the extended, you still have the one-year period to do it. Now, since the taxpayer did not obtain the extension, let us presume the taxpayer didn't file and didn't get an extension, you're going only, only going to have 12 months from the original due date if that was the measuring date. But at least you have that period, so you would have till April 15th of 2006 to make an election that should have been made by April 15, 2005, on a 2004 return. Now, basically, here are the elections, and they're listed in your materials. We're not going to go through the details of what they are. Uh, the details of what each of these elections does is a whole other.
podcast, a whole other series, and each one can be covered separately, and each one probably you could devote a nice full-day CPE course to. But basically, these are the elections that qualify for relief if you find that they haven't been made and they need to be made. The election to use other than required tax will be under Section 444. Election to use the last in, first out inventory method under Section 472. The 15-month rule for filing an exemption application for a Section 501c9, C17, or C20 organization under Section 505. The 15-month rule for filing an exemption application for a 501c3 organization under Section 508. The election to be treated as a homeowner association under Section 528. The election to adjust basis on partnership transfers and distributions under Section 754. The estate tax election to specifically value qualified real property where the IRS has not yet begun an examination of the filed return under 2032 Cap A D1. The Chapter 14 gift tax election to treat a qualified payment right as other than a qualified payment under Section 2701 C3 Cap C little i. And the Chapter 14 gift tax election to treat any distribution right as a qualified payment under Section 2701C3, Cap 3, little 2i. You can be a real hero to the client if it's a new client and you catch this problem and you're within the one-year period. So that's very useful. Note, you can also become a GOAT if you do get a new client. This election's out there and you either fail to note that you still had time to fix this election or... You actually told the client, oh, your previous, your previous preparer, your previous accountant, your previous EA, your previous whatever, missed this election and you're just out of luck, tough luck. You may have now just inherited the mistake somebody else made because you just made another one by not noting that we still had time to fix the problem. Uh, please note, if there's automatic here, it would have been granted. You're in, you're going to have a real problem explaining why you didn't do it. And you may have just inherited somebody else's problem, even if it wasn't yours to get started with. So be careful with these elections that qualify for the 12 months. Uh, make sure if, if it looks like something's been missed, you go back and you check against this list. You may find everything can still be fixed and relieved. Now, if you don't qualify for 12-month relief, you may qualify for 6-month relief. Now, reality is the six-month relief provision is really a provision to keep the IRS from facing this problem. A number of elections and a number of a number of elections need to be filed with the original return. Now if the IRS didn't have this provision many of us would start thinking and realize look there's these elections that count when they're filed with the original return that we need to file the original return. You know, maybe the safest course is to hold off filing the original return, get the first extension, and this year, in the future, we wouldn't have to do this on an individual return, but next in the future, this year, we still got the second extension. We'd go ahead and extend the return all the way to October 15th, have the client file on October 15th. That way, just in case we discovered we wanted to make these elections, we would still be able to do so on the original return because we would, wouldn't have filed before October 15th. You know, we waited to the last day to do it 
just in case we discovered an election we wanted to make. Since the IRS doesn't really want every tax professional in the United States putting every client on extension and having all those returns finally arrive on October 15th, the IRS grants this provision that puts everybody on essentially the same date for these elections. That is, six months after the original due date of the original unextended due date of the return. Regulation 301.9100-2B provides an automatic six-month extension to make an election in the case of a due date of a return from a basically it provides an automatic extension where there is essentially a regulation, a extension that is tied to that original due date. Now, this paragraph, as a note, does not apply to regulatory statutory elections that must be made by the due date of the return, excluding extensions. Some things have to happen by that due date and really tied to there. If they're tied to that date, you don't get the six months. That is, if you wouldn't have been any better by filing the extension well, without this provision, we're not going to grant you something here. And remember, the regulatory statutory election, the due dates are the due date of the return or the due date of the return, including extensions, provided you timely filed the return for the year the election should have been made. Again, important here, a taxpayer who fails to timely file his or her return does not qualify for this provision. So then you have to look for whether a late filed return is going to work under the election in question. In some cases, it will not. This provision will not get you out of jail in that case if the extension was not valid. Note the six-month period runs from the original due date of the return. So you don't buy yourself extra time by filing for an extension here. Uh, if I file for an extension, what I've really done is reduce the six-month extension to six months minus however long it takes me to actually get the return filed. So taxpayers who file on October 15th will not have any days to avail themselves of this. A taxpayer who filed on October 15th or on August 15th, still has two months to avail themselves of this. A taxpayer who filed by April 15th still can avail themselves of the full six-month extension. Now, basically, it provides a second chance to correct oversights. That's important. That includes oversights that might have occurred during the heat of tax return preparation season. Suddenly you notice in reviewing the client's work during the year that, you know, they probably should have elected this on the return that was done in April. Well, you still have a chance to correct this problem through the end of, through October 15th, the extended due date deadline effectively for everybody. So make a note that the taxpayer should have done this. Some of the elections that can be corrected here. Let's say the taxpayer had a net operating loss and you discover now that, oops, you know, what I really should have done was, you know, we intended to attach an election to carry the loss forward, but we didn't. You can fix that problem at this point. The client can fix the problem by now attaching the election to carry the loss forward and then can act and do that. We don't have the problem. Or let's say the taxpayer had an installment sale. 
and had reported the installment sale on the installment basis, but now wants to make an election. Remember, under that provision in the code, we look at an election to report the entire gain in year of sale. Perhaps we discover the taxpayer received full payment by now for 2005. We also discover that, you know, we're going to pick up either all the gain in 2005 or all the gain in 2004. Well, the taxpayer would have been better off paying the tax in 2004 because in 2005 they have a whole lot of other income that's going to push them, that's going to cause this to create problems with income this year. They would have paid significantly lower tax reporting this gain in 2004. Well, you still can correct that and make the election that can be made to do this. So what we end up doing here now in our pecking order, what we have is we had an election that didn't wasn't on the 12-month list, but it's on the six-month list and we're, we're within the six months. So we go ahead and we come here. Now those are the good ones. Let's say we failed both of those tests. We're outside the six-month period or we didn't qualify for the six-month period and we're not on the 12-month list now we're on the non-automatic extensions. Those are found at 301.9100-3. Now the problem with the non-automatic extensions are we have to ask for a letter ruling. A letter ruling by definition does not guarantee success. The IRS will has the discretion to grant you the ruling. Now the regulation tells you the conditions under which they would grant the ruling but you have to convince the IRS those conditions exist and you still have all the process of the back and forth, the user fees and the professional time of preparing the application for the letter ruling and then the care and feeding when the IRS comes back with questions, says we need this, we want this clarification, uh, can you do this, we want the taxpayer to execute this document, we want them to extend the statute, we have a lot of care and feeding that can make a letter ruling request a very expensive proposition. So first stopping point here, if we're talking about $100 in tax, there is no point in discussing this issue. The taxpayer is not going to want to go through the hassle of doing this, uh, not should say or shouldn't want to, and you need to make it clear that while they theoretically have the option perhaps to get this election in place now and get a benefit that they're looking for. Reality is, even if you got it, it would cost so much to get it, it would wipe out the tax benefits. And while I'm not adverse to taking the fees uh, for doing this, I think you're a little dumb to pay me 20000 bucks in order to find out that you have a $100 tax difference at the end of the day when we're all done over the whole life of what we're talking about. Uh, wouldn't be worth the bother. So taxpayers need to understand that this will be an expensive proposition. It's there, but it's not necessarily going to be simple. Now, if we're talking about a major item, though, it may very well be worth the bother, in which case we need to take a look at this. Now, you must make the formal request for the private letter ruling relief. Now, the private letter ruling relief, and that's regulation 301.9100-3A, requires it to be a private letter ruling. And that same regulation section sets out the requirements. In order, the IRS will grant the request if you meet the following two tests, and they are joined by an and. Key issue. Whenever you're looking at regulations or items like this, 
the question of whether a list of items is connected by an AND at the end or an OR becomes crucial. Remember, if that last term is an AND, it tells you I've got to check off every one of these. If that last item is an OR, it means I just have to check off one of them. So our question quickly becomes, do we have an AND, do we have an OR? What we discover very quickly uh, is that, in fact, in this case we have an AND. That means we're going to have to meet all of these tests. In this case, you must establish that the taxpayer, the taxpayer must provide evidence that the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith. Basically, what they have done up to now is reasonable and good faith. And remember, you have to provide evidence, so that tells you that you've got to put forward the case. It's not up to the IRS. There's no presumption here. You need to provide that evidence. You don't provide the evidence. Tough luck. And the grant of relief will not prejudice the interest of the government. That's an and. So even if I can establish the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith, if the grant of relief would prejudice the interests of the government, relief's not granted. Similarly, even if the relief would not prejudice the interests of the government, unless I present evidence the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith, you don't qualify for the relief. Now, the one piece of good news is that since this is a private letter ruling requirement, the IRS publishes private letter rulings. That means we have a pretty good idea of what areas the IRS has granted relief in and under what circumstances they do. And in fact, normally you're going to find a whole slate of cases or a whole slate of rulings where the IRS has granted the relief. What you can do is discover if your client basically looks like the ones that have gotten relief, you have a pretty good feeling going forward that, you know, we can run this through the process and we'll eventually get relief. Similarly, if nobody's ever gotten relief for the provision in question or it looks as if it just simply doesn't happen, that's a pretty good indication that, you know, odds are moving forward with this is not a smart move, even though theoretically we might be able to believe we can argue the case. Uh, this is going to be an uphill fight, and the client needs to be forewarned ahead of time because it's a letter ruling. There is always the chance the answer will be no. And a client needs to understand that they can incur significant costs, costs they will incur regardless of whether it's a yes or no answer, and the client needs to be ready to accept the fact the answer could be no. You need to control expectations here. Clients who now believe they've really, really fouled up and really have a problem are going to want to believe there's an out. You need to guard, you need to very carefully manage the fact that, look, this out may not work. You have got to understand that going forward has a cost, that cost may bear no fruit, and you may just have paid fees to me for nothing. At the end of the day, we may still be back where we are. If you can accept that, we move forward. If you can't accept that, then we need, to, then I need, you need to find another person to work with, because that simply is how it's going to happen. Now let's go for reasonable, acting reasonably and in good faith. Regulation 301.9100-3B1 provides a list of cases under which the taxpayer will be deemed to have acted reasonably in good faith. Note, the language of the regulation is such that this list isn't exhaustive. If you're not on this list, uh, 
you're, you're real, you, you can still argue you acted reasonably so long as you don't fall into the list of things deemed not to be in reasonable and good faith found at regulation 301.9100-3B3 that we'll talk about later. Now, here are the situations where the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith. And they are joined by an or, so we just need to meet one of these. First, you request the relief before the failure to make the regulatory election is discovered by the IRS. Second, fail to make the election because of intervening events beyond the taxpayer's control. Such as death, let's say the taxpayer was incapacitated, something external happened that kept the taxpayer from doing it. Uh, these days you were in New Orleans when Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina hit. You have property there, all your records are there. You know, you may be unable to timely make that election. Let's say that was the reason. Failed to make the election because after exercising reasonable diligence, taking into account the taxpayer's experience and the complexity of the return and issue, the taxpayer was unaware of the necessity for the election. That is, ignorance is an excuse here. If it's reasonable ignorance, and you've reasonably been diligent, you reasonably relied on the written advice, written advice, now this is important of the IRS, the fact that you called somebody on the phone doesn't count. Uh, and you have to explain that to the client. That's not going to get us this automatic. I need a piece of paper where they said you didn't have to do it. Or you reasonably relied on a qualified tax professional, including a tax professional employed by the taxpayer, and the tax professional failed to make or advise the taxpayer to make the election. Now that last case is a key one and can be problematic. Because what you're asking in that final case is for, in order to get that one, the IRS is going to ask you to prove you did it. Remember, we have to present proof. Well, the proof is going to be, essentially, since we're saying that a, tax, that a professional failed to advise us, uh, is going to have to be the professional admitting they didn't tell us. Well, that may be a problem to get a professional to admit. This is just real-world questions. Now, that one is also covered by a special part of the regulation. Reasonable reliance on a qualified tax professional is defined at 301.9100-3b2. For purposes of paragraph B, a taxpayer will not be considered to have reasonably relied on a qualified tax professional if the taxpayer knew or should have known the professional was not, one, competent to render the advice in the regulatory election, or two, aware of all relevant facts. Reverse that. In order to get this, you need to show the person you dealt with that it was reasonable to believe they were competent to render the advice. This wasn't some guy you stopped on the street. And two, they had all the relevant facts. They were aware of all the facts. You provided them with all the facts. Uh, if you don't show both of those are true, uh, you're going to have trouble with the reliance on a professional. Now, the courts have analyzed this in a slightly related area. In fact, I think a very good case to look at is the case of Neonatology Associates versus Commissioner, where Judge Laro gave a pretty good analysis about the problems of reliance on a professional, or a case where he argued that they didn't. The problem in Neonatology, which dealt with penalties, was that the professional in question didn't was an insurance agent who's not a tax professional, who had a lot to gain from the transaction, and who therefore didn't seem objective, and it just did not seem reasonable in the judge's view to rely on that professional. 
even better. He didn't really seem to provide anything that was there. Uh, you know, basically, no, none of them, they claim to have relied on opinion letters out there. Here was a problem where, in fact, the opinion letters, nobody testified they ever looked at one. Well, you relied on one, but you never saw it. Tough to rely on something you didn't read. Uh, well, we relied that somebody told us there was one. Not good enough. And they also attempted to argue, well, merely because my return was prepared by a certified public accountant, that was reasonable reliance. And the judge pointed out there that you didn't show evidence that you ever told the certified public accountant about all the details of this transaction. And you can only rely on the professional if you provided them with all relevant details. So, and this is probably important to explain to a client, the mere fact that you had a CPA do your return last year, or you had an EA, or you had whoever do your return last year, is not going to get you out of this, or going to say it was reasonable, simply because they, you know, they prepared the return. You have to show you specifically went after them, you specifically gave them the information related to this election and that they had all the information necessary to have advised you and did advise you on this topic. Professionals probably going to be advised by their insurance carrier to claim that they were never engaged to advise you on this, because you're asking them to say, essentially, I was engaged to provide advice, I failed to provide the advice, and my advice was wrong. That seems to be the outline of the assertions that a plaintiff needs to prove in order to win a malpractice claim. A professional's going to have to essentially set themselves up for the claim in order to let the client get out from under this. Professionals may not be apt to be cooperative in that case. Uh, secondly, it does say we can rely on an employee. Here's where a second problem is going to occur. The taxpayer has a controller, and the controller is a CPA, but a CPA who's never done tax work because they've been a controller. They've been inside this company, or even if they did tax work, they clearly probably aren't an expert and don't even claim to be an expert on the intricacies of elections required under some provision of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, you know, I may be a controller, but I didn't exactly learn about all these crazy elections that are available under the tax code because we have an outside tax firm to handle that. I'm, you know, I'm more concerned with the internal control issues and the financial reporting issues. Uh, in that case, is it reasonable to have relied on them to have failed to advise you, for instance, that you had to attach an election to carry forward a net operating loss? Well, maybe not. The other problem is, if you relied on them, it kind of becomes now a catch-22. If they truly were qualified and it was reasonable to rely on them for that, uh, the fact that they missed it might suggest that they weren't qualified to re be relied upon. It's kind of a backdoor problem with their qualifications. Secondly, the question is going to become, you know, how much tax background did you really ask them about? Now, it is, pro it is possible, to be honest, since the idea here did the taxpayer believe, that if you showed the taxpayer was unsophisticated enough, you might be able to argue that they just believe every accountant knows taxes and therefore they hired an accountant, so by definition, and kind of loosely define what an accountant is, uh, that therefore that, that would have covered them. But it's going to be an uphill fight. As well, the taxpayer is deemed not to have acted reasonably uh, if, in fact, the following conditions are met later in the regulation.
And these are things that kick you out automatically. If you seek to alter return position for which an accuracy-related penalty has been or could be imposed under Section 6662 at the time the taxpayer requests relief, taking into account a qualified amended return within the meaning of, of Regulation Section 1.664-2C3 of this chapter, and a new position requires or permits a regulatory election for which relief is requested. Number two was informed in all material respects of required election-related tax consequences, but chose not to file the election. Note, a tax professional may very well claim they did that. They may claim they did it orally, so this may be a he said, she, she said, but as I noted, to get the reliance issue out, you're going to have to get the letter from the professional. If you now start disputing with professional, the professional starts saying, I told them, now the IRS claims, oh, we've got evidence you were told. And now the client has a problem. Now, stepping aside for a second, this should be instructive to you as to how you protect yourself against such a claim by a client. Obviously, if you don't want to become a he said, she said, you would need to have documentation, preferably written. Clients do tend to forget. If you advise a client an election should be made or an election can be made and there could be bad consequences if it's not and certain things happen, you probably need to and should document that fact, preferably in a letter to the client. Now, that doesn't put the client necessarily in a good position, but remember, the client is going specifically against your advice by failing to file the election, and or the client is admitting they are making a reasonable choice not to file the election because now they understand the problem. Since clients have a tendency when things go bad, and people in general do, uh, their memory may not be the best, especially in areas where they don't have great expertise, and something bad just happened, and now somebody must be to blame for this. I mean, you know, some, something went wrong, there's a problem. Uh, they may very well now want to go back and say, you should have told me, especially when, some, when they go consult somebody else who says, well, you know, if you just made this election, we wouldn't have this problem. Now the taxpayer is saying, well, nobody told me because they've forgotten. Some people are dishonest and will conveniently forget, but others, quite honestly, will not remember. And unless you have that evidence, you may be facing a malpractice suit. You need to document these facts. Just protect yourself. Minor detail. Third reason, though, why a client isn't going to qualify here. Uses hindsight in requesting relief. Basically, you can't request relief because in looking back, because it's a clear that in looking back, you've decided the reg would be would be better off to make the election. Now, again, this is the non-automatic elections. Automatic elections had no prohibition against using hindsight. This one does. If specific facts have changed since the due date for making the election that make the election advantageous to a taxpayer, the IRS will, ordinarily, will not ordinarily grant relief. In such a case, the IRS will grant relief only when the taxpayer provides strong proof that the taxpayer's decision to seek relief did not involve hindsight. In essence, if it appears you're benefiting from the from hindsight, uh, you've got to prove that uh, the hindsight had nothing to do with your reason of making this election. That may be a difficult burden to bear. But let's presume you cleared all of these issues, so you acted reasonably and you acted in good faith you still have to clear, clear the prejudice of interest to the government, Colonel, which is a real problem.
in most cases a client wanting to make one of these elections wants to make it because it lowers their tax liability. Otherwise, they didn't want to make the election. You know, they wouldn't care about making the election. Well, this provision then becomes a hurdle that's often very difficult or impossible to clear because the interest of the government cannot be prejudiced. And given a big refund, prejudices their interest, just as your client would believe paying a big amount of tax prejudices their interest. So here we go. The general provisions for interest of the government fighting regulation 301.3100-3C1. Uh, and that provides Christian grant a reasonable extension of time to make a regulatory election only when the interest of the government will not be prejudiced by the granting of relief. This paragraph provides the standards the commission will use to determine when the interest of the government is a prejudice. Number one, lower tax liability. Interest of the government are prejudiced. That's a key word. Doesn't say maybe, doesn't say are presumed to be, says are prejudiced. If granting relief would result in the taxpayer having a lower tax liability in aggregate for all taxable years affected by the election, the taxpayer would have had, had if the election had been timely made, parenthetically taking into account the time value of money. If the taxpayer's better off from a tax perspective by making this election, and we do consider time value of money, so the mere fact the tax gets paid back the next year, if that's all that happens as a pure swap, you're still not going to carry this one because time value of money, the government was better off having it earlier. Uh, you have a problem here. Similarly, if the tax consequences of more than one taxpayer affected by the election, the government's interests are prejudiced if extending the time for making the election may result in the affected taxpayers in the aggregate having a lower tax liability than if the election had been timely made. So you can't get around this by saying the S corporation doesn't change when I make this election. You know, their tax doesn't change. Well, that's fine, but the tax of all the related taxpayers does. Or if, you know, the, the tax of the corporation goes up when I make this, but oh, by the way, the tax of the shareholders goes down. Well, that doesn't count either. Number two, closed years. The interests of the governments are ordinarily prejudiced. Now, that means we have discretion here. If the tax year on which the regulation should have been made, or any tax years that would have been affected by the elections had it been timely made, are closed by the statute of limitation on assessments under Section 6501A before the taxpayer's receipt of a ruling granting relief under the section. The IRS may grant may condition a grant of relief on taxpayer providing the, the IRS a statement from an independent auditor other than the auditor providing an affidavit pursuant to paragraph E3 of this section, certifying that the interests of the government are not prejudiced under standards set forth in E and C1, little i of this section. Note the lower, note, these are all kind of interesting. Now, example 4 of regulation 301.9100-3 seems to indicate that if no taxes are paid to date, or taxes paid to date are not changed by the election, you may still be able to qualify under this not prejudicing the interests of the government, even though future taxes would be impacted. Uh, now, the actual example is a little bit unrealistic, I think, because I don't see many cases where that fact pattern would hold, but it does suggest that the real test was no difference to date. If there's no difference in the returns already filed, then the government's interests aren't prejudiced and you're fine. Accounting methods and period tests are subject to a higher hurdle. Those are described in our materials. There's also a couple of things under D, under D2, 
Section 301.9100-3D that's called Effect on Amended Returns that really provides for limitations that impact primarily on the benefits the taxpayer has to give up. Taxpayer can object to the second exam on the issues under, you know, well, this is second exam because they've just changed the issues. They're allowed, those issues are allowed to be examined now even if the previous exam was in place. And secondly, the taxpayer may have to agree to extend the statute for assessment uh, on these issues. And the IRS can condition things on that. If you've gotten this far and the taxpayer is still convinced that they're going to go forward, then there are procedural requirements in 301.9100-3E that must be complied with. Make sure your taxpayers go through those. The procedural requirements would have to be complied with in order to meet that. If somebody's going this far, then you start dotting the I's, crossing the T's, providing all of the required documents and affidavits, and start collecting this. And you quickly discover when you go through this, this is going to be a complex undertaking. It's going to require a lot of work, and it's going to be expensive. Now, what we've got here is a real issue where clients are going to need to be able to understand that these are complex rules, complex issues. There are ways to fix it. Realize, in some cases, there are simple ways to fix the problem. You need to be aware of those. You need to have these in your arsenal of tools. But as well, taxpayers need to be aware that sometimes it's just not going to be reasonable to go forward, even though theoretically we could fix an issue. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, September 17, 2005. Now, later this week, I'll be doing the Arizona Society Circular 230 update. And as of the day I was recording this, there was still some space available. I don't know if there will be by the time you listen to this. But if you can, go ahead and you're in the Phoenix area. You can sign up. The course will be at Central and Thomas in the Hilton Garden Inn. Uh, be held over lunchtime on the 20th. Uh, you get a lunch out of the deal, plus continuing education. Uh, I will also be traveling later that week to Roanoke, Virginia, for the Virginia Accounting and Auditing Conference in Roanoke. So I will actually be there the Saturday following, and we'll probably tape my podcast for that Saturday. Uh, coming, Tape my podcast for the following Saturday while I'm in Roanoke. Uh, but I'll be there and doing a presentation there the following uh, week at their conference on Monday and Tuesday. I've got presentations going on on technology in the tax practice. So I'll be on the road a bit and around a bit. But this has been the tax update for Saturday, September 17th, 2005.